My name is Caleb Galloway. Glad you're here this morning. And we're also glad if you're tuning in online. We're thankful for all of you that are here with us. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The church calendar year comes to its climax today as we celebrate the resurrection of our King Jesus, the Son of the living God. In fact, it is not only the climax of the church calendar, it's the climax of all history. And the Christian faith and our personal faith is undergirded and empowered by this event. It is highly important for the Christian faith. And we're going to look at that this morning. A couple of questions I'm going to throw to you before we read. What are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus? What is the so what of the resurrection? What are some of those implications? We're going to look at that today and just uh, cover a few to encourage us. But let's start reading 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read 1 through 8. Sorry, 1 through 9. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is God's word, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you again, and we ask that you would illuminate our minds and warm our hearts. Lord, we are in dire need of your truth, the truth, contained in your word. Teach us, feed our hungry souls, give us hope in this life and the life that is to come. Lord, thank you. Holy Spirit, be our great teacher this morning. Stir us up that we may adore our King Jesus. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Over the years, we have read and reread the classic children's story of Cinderella to our girls. Most of you know the story, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but as the story goes, Cinderella's father dies. She is stuck with her evil stepmother and stepsisters. She's forced to do all the work for these three with no rest, no relief, and no delight. The story is written in such a way that you find yourself rooting for Cinderella, even asking the question, what will get her out of this mess, and when will she get out? The prince's royal ball is announced to the kingdom. The friendly mice try to deliver her. They make her a dress that is beautiful, and then it's torn by her sisters. And 
she was given more work by the stepmother, seeking to prevent her from going to the ball. Even after breaking out and going to the ball, dancing with the prince all night and losing her glass slipper, she's locked in her upper room by the evil stepmother. This classic story taps into the reality we all face. We all sense that there is something incredibly wrong with the world. We experience hardship, pain, mistreatment, discouragement, depression, division, disease, and death. All the while feeling this deep yearning for something more. The subconscious suspicion that life is not all that there is. We crave deliverance, relief, and utopia. We inherently know that there has to be a happily ever after at some point. We ache for it, we root for it, yet it feels beyond our grasp, out of our control. This is why we love such stories as Cinderella. We love such stories where there is good and then there's an evil interruption and there's longing for deliverance and deliverance comes. And I want to submit to you that every good story takes its cue from the story of all creation. The story that God has written. The story that he is delivering us. Today we celebrate the one who holds the happily ever after ending in his hands. In fact, the one who died and rose again to accomplish our deliverance. And the ending of all endings. The utopia of all utopias. Humanity reconciled to God. Man, woman, boy, and girl in full unity with one another. Heaven on earth. What I proclaim to you today, what billions of Christians celebrate today in the global church, what the church triumphant in heaven and all the heavenly beings proclaim daily is this. And this is our main point. Jesus The Prince of Peace, the King of Heaven and Earth, has accomplished what humanity never could. His kingdom has broken into time, space, and history, and he will bring the fullness of his kingdom when he returns. This is our king. This is what he has done. If you could put it in a nutshell, he has brought deliverance. And I ask again, what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We'll look at three things this morning. Two of them were delivered from, and one were delivered to. So first, we're delivered from dominion of evil, that's sin and Satan. Secondly, we're delivered from death and judgment. And thirdly, we're delivered to the life. So think about those beings. Dominion, death, to the life. Before we go to our points, I want to note several things about our principal passage that I just read. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, in around 55 A.D. Paul is received by most modern scholars, liberal and conservative, as the most reliable witness to um, Christ raising from the grave. You remember Paul was struck down the road to Damascus and saw the risen Christ. And then he talked with several eyewitnesses and gave several accounts of that. Here in chapter 15, Paul reminds his readers of the gospel that he first preached to them on his second missionary journey. You notice he said, the the gospel that I delivered to you, that which I received, I gave. He's passing it on. In verse 2, he states that this gospel is how they and all Christians are saved. And it 
exhort them to hold fast to this word. What is it? What is this word? Verses 3 through 5 is what most scholars say is a historical, ancient creed dated back to within one year of Christ's death and resurrection. Each line is begun with the Greek word hosi. In English, it is that. That, and you see the repetition, that. Line one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Line two, that he was buried. Line three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Line four, in verse five, that he appeared to Cephas, then he was Peter, and then to the twelve. Paul reiterates this oral creed that had been passed down to him, and he says, this is a synopsis of what God has done. Christ came and died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. This is what we believe as Christians. And Paul is saying, here it is. Remember, hold fast to this. This is a nutshell of the Christian faith. So what? What are the implications of the resurrection? This is what Paul does throughout the whole rest of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to read it or thoroughly go through it, but I encourage you, this is good reading for your family this afternoon, this evening, or this week, where Paul goes through and delineates what is the resurrection for? What does it do? What does it accomplish? First of all, we want to look at we are delivered from the dominion of evil. That is sin, our own sin, and Satan, the evil forces around us. Look with me at verses 12 through 19 of this chapter. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if that is true, that he ra- the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And he- listen to this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You hear what he's saying? He said, if Christ is not raised, it's all good for nothing. You're in your sins. He's saying Christ was raised from the grave so that you can be forgiven once and for all for your sins. It is actualized. It is empowered. It's what our lives depend on. It's the linchpin of all Christianity is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 begins with saying that we are dead in our sins. And then in verse 4 it says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, Paul appeals to resurrection power. He says this is what Christ has done. He has brought you from death and sin to life. And you are with him, in him, right now, and he is in you. God made us alive together with Christ. This is the point of Colossians 3.1, where it says, We have been raised with Christ. 
This raising is from the clutches, the darkness, the dominion of sin. It means that sin no longer has power over us. We're now living under the influence of another power, the power of the Spirit. That sin, that nagging sin that you see in your heart, you keep fighting off, that you are demoralized about often, it has no power over you. You have been delivered. You've been given power to move against that. You've been given freedom and forgiveness for that. You no longer have to live on a treadmill of good works, hoping that you can do enough to free you from the sin that you see in your life. Jesus takes your treadmill and destroys it in the cross and the resurrection. And he says, come, let me carry you. Not only are we delivered from sin, we're delivered from Satan, his clutches and dominion. Look with me at verses 23 through 25 in the same chapter. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We'll look at that in just a minute. What this is saying is that he has defeated the enemy of God and your enemy. Colossians 2.15 puts it in the present, the past, actions of what God's done on the cross. He disarmed, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus in Matthew 12 even spoke of binding the strong man, that is Satan. Jesus through his death and resurrection has bound Satan, the strong man of this world, and our Lord is now plundering the house of Satan who is this world drawing his people to himself. Satan is defeated. We are delivered from the clutches, the power, the dominion of Satan and all evil. Secondly, we're delivered from the last enemy. We are delivered from death, which is judgment. Romans 6.23 states, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, when, Je- when God said to Adam and Eve, If you eat it, Of this tree, surely you will die. Even in the garden, God showed grace to them. They didn't immediately die. He provided a way out. He provided grace. And it was looking ahead to a deliverer who will bring grace once and for all. Sin leads to judgment and wrath from God. God is holy. God, in His holiness, can't allow sin into his presence much like the burning sun if we were in a spaceship there's only so close we could get before we would disintegrate so God's holiness is like that with our sin there is no entrance in and of ourselves there must be one who will provide entrance for us faith in Christ leads to relief forgiveness and justification Christ bore the penalty of our sin on the cross, and so we're delivered from that judgment. Look over with me at the end of this chapter, verses 50 through 56. I'm going to pick up in verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Talking about the resurrection. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal to its own immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And listen to this, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, through the resurrection of Christ, has accomplished the death of death. Actually, Paul here taunts death. He laughs in its face. It's a little taunt. You see, it's kind of invented the way it's written. But because in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is now a doorway to everlasting life for the Christian. To be clear, the Christian hope is not the deliverance from our bodies to float around as spirits for all eternity. No. Our hope is life after life after death. It is the resurrection of our bodies. Yes, we have hope at death that we'll depart and be with the Lord, but ultimately when Jesus comes back, He's going to resurrect this stuff, our bodies. And it's going to be amazing and beautiful. This is why Paul says we'll have a spiritual soma, a body. It's hard for us to understand. But it's a glorified body. You look at Jesus, He is the prototype. What happened when he resurrected? He ate fish. He talked to his disciples. He walked with them on the road to Emmaus. He broke bread with them and ate it. He told Thomas, touch my body. So we shall be raised. Death will not defeat us. Our physical bodies will be raised new and be glorious. Christ, the captain of our souls, the reclaimer of our bodies, and all of creation is the victor over the last enemy that is death. This is how Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts 7, when he was being stoned, he looked up and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man seating at the right hand on high. Death does not get the last word. I love 16th century Anglican minister and poet John Donne. I've probably shared this before. His sonnet number 10 is often called Death Be Not Proud. And most people believe it was written in light of 1 Corinthians 15, 26, which says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'm going to read it for us here this morning. Death be not proud, though some have called thee, mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For whom dost thou thinkest thou dost overthrow? Die not, poor death, nor canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, but thy pictures be. Much pleasure, then, from thee much more flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. And dust of poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. We have to think about death. We will all die at some point. What is going to be your victory over death? How will you overflow, overthrow death? Christ did it for the Christian. And he invites you and says, come with me. 
death will not defeat you. Follow me. I have more. The best is yet to come. Death is imminent for us all. We do not know what tomorrow holds. We don't know if we have the next second out of this building. The scriptures compare the length of our lives with that of a passing shadow, a flower in the field that dies in a breath. It's very short. Our lives are only minnows fraction compared to eternity. The question we have to deal with is this. Where are you in a relationship to Jesus Christ this morning? Do you follow him as a disciple, yearning for him, seeking his face? Do you you put your trust in him for what he has accomplished, turning away from what you think you can accomplish? Trust him today. Today is the day of salvation. We are delivered from dominion of sin, Satan, and death, but we are also delivered to something. I would propose that we are delivered to delight. That's our last point. In light of all that I've said, this should produce hope and delight in us. We are set free to be delightful disciples, not just dutiful disciples. Duty is a part of it, but delight is a big part of it as well. What is our delight? Our delight is knowing our King Jesus, the greatest man that's ever walked the face of this planet who is 100% man, 100% God. We long to see the beauty and love and majesty of Christ. And we cannot be but such in such awe of a God who became man, suffered and died for our evils, and rose again. We see in the scriptures a vision for what our future hope is. Revelation 21, I want you to just listen to this, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. As a people of God, our future is a better country, a renewed world, the promised land of heaven and earth united as one. That is the promised land that the Israelites longed for. That's the promised land the early Christians longed for. That's the promised land we long for. Not just a strip in Palestine, but the whole earth filled with the glory of God. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Sam and Frodo, the two little hobbits, at the end of the book, they're climbing up Mount Doom to destroy the one ring that gave power to the evil one, Sauron. Both hobbits are utterly exhausted and Frodo is ready to give up his mission. If you've seen the movies, they're pretty good. The books are better. It's astounding. At one point, Mr. Frodo is ready to give up. And so Mr. Frodo does what Sam tells him. And here's what Sam says to Frodo. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? 
it'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thickets, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields, and eating the first of the strawberries this spring. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? They're in this dark place, climbing this dark mountain with volcanic stuff going everywhere, and they're exhausted. And Sam says, do you remember the taste of strawberries? He goes on. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know, you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad that happened? With so much bad that happened. But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness, must pass. The Cinderella story ends with her marrying the prince and living as the delight of his kingdom happily ever after. Frodo ends being the deliverer in the Lord of the Rings. We long for and dream about such endings. They awaken us a craving, and I would say a craving that's an echo of Eden. It's a desire to be back in the garden, in paradise. We, we sang about it twice. It was, take us to paradise. Hallelujah. Where we're going to be in a better, a better world than even Eden. It's going to be so much better, and this is what Christ has done. He's the hero of all heroes. This is the story, the true story of reality. And this morning, I invite you to take a look at Jesus Christ. Take a look at his life. Take a look at his death, his resurrection. It brings about hope, joy, and life everlasting. This is our Lord. This is our King. And this is the point of the resurrection, that he rose from the dead, and we too will rise in the end when he returns. He has come. He has risen. He will return. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you. We are not worthy for such a salvation. We thank you, oh God, that you came down and scooped us out of the dirt and the darkness. Lord, you saw us when we were feeble and frail and dead in our sins, and you made us alive in Christ. Lord Jesus, we long for your return. We are eager for your return. And may you stir us up more and more with hope, with joy, and with power. Father, we love you. We praise you. And we thank you that you have made us sons and daughters. And we ask that if anyone in this immense room that does not know you, that they would come to know you quickly and delightfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.